little less than three years ago, there was a uh, there was an issue of the Spirit Rock News with articles and schedules and so forth. And I think the lead article at that time had this on the uh, cover. Uh, Donald Rothberg, comma, the most important of all possible spiritual topics. (laughs) My mother appreciated it. And I, I appreciated the ambiguity, but the, <laughs> the title was pointing to a theme which I do believe is the most important topic in a certain way, which is the theme of how we manifest our practice in daily life, how we can learn and deepen, and whatever we do in our individual meditations, how do we bring that out into the entirety of one's life, into the entirety of our lives? So it's not really about having this or that experience, and it's not necessarily about faithfully meditating 20 minutes a day, but it's really about how can the qualities of awareness, mindfulness, wisdom, compassion, kindness, effective action, how can those be there increasingly in all the moments of our lives throughout the day? And it's a particularly important topic for many of us Uh, because we live in a culture which can leave us very distracted. We can get very wrapped up in things. And it can be uh, quite a challenge to have that sense of practice get increasingly uh, there in more and more of our lives. So what I wanted to do today, and then the next two times, is talk about the theme of deepening daily life practice. And I want to do so today by talking about around 50 different ways to deepen practice. And I'm going to ask you to listen for the one or two or possibly three that speak to you. By all means, do not implement right now all of the 50 things I mentioned. Don't do it, or don't try to do it. It won't work. There was research at Stanford about how one establishes good habits. And they found that there were three keys for establishing good habits. The first is that you connect your new habit with an already established habit. The second is that you do something that is bite-sized, not too much. That's why I'm saying think of one or two ways you want to deepen wherever you are, wherever you are in your own development. And the third was when you accomplish 
to shifting into a new habit that's beneficial, give yourself a reward. Okay? So this applies to everything in life. Okay? And so this has been a particularly important theme for me, I think for a long time, but especially uh, in the last few years that I typically do quite a bit of retreat time every year. And it's been important for me as, a, as my own personal cutting edge to be able to increasingly have the levels of awareness or insight that are there uh, typically on retreat be there more and more in daily life. And I think that's an edge for nearly everyone who does retreats. You know, and it's not an easy one because the, you know, how many of you have done some retreats two-day, three-day, four-day, you know that the level of support is very high. The level of clarity about what you're doing is very high. Uh, the instruction is, is hopefully good, clear, and helping you to really guide your time there. And then we come to daily life. At the end of the retreat, we say, here are some suggestions, good luck. A little bit self-critical because I'm a teacher who teaches retreats and I think that we do we could really emphasize this more. You know, I even have visions of uh, some retreats where we might you know, we might uh, have a I don't know, a 10-day retreat and we devote the last two or three days to daily life practice where we do a month retreat and we have the whole last week on daily life practice, right? And there, there are virtues to that. And um, I guess anything I teach, I get to experiment with. So, um, but I think it's a very, it's a very crucial theme. And uh, those of you who know, uh, who were there, uh, I think three weeks ago, I gave a talk three days after doing four weeks of retreat. And I, I spoke about some of my interest in daily life practice and some of the learning that I had on the retreat. And I'll bring some, some more of that in here. But I was very motivated to continue the momentum of those four weeks. And it felt like I have done that in many ways. Uh, it's now about three and a half weeks after that retreat ended. And I've generally kept the schedule more or less of the retreat. Not so much the sitting and walking, but the... Um, the wake up, sleep time, meals, and I've, and I've I had about uh, 15 uh, self-developed guidelines for myself after the retreat, and I have followed most of them. You know, and so it feels very much uh, continuous at this time, and I feel a lot of energy for this theme. I, I've thought actually of doing a six-month or four-month uh, group class that could be on the theme of deepening daily life practice. I've even thought of a, a book, but I have to finish the other book I'm working on first. <laughs> One of the themes that I, for daily life practice is don't try to do too much. <laughs> right. And so uh, I thought what I would do would be to 
go through something like 50 suggestions. And again, with the interest of seeing or inviting you to see what calls you. Maybe some of them will resonate, but I'm looking for you to work with your own inner wisdom to, say, to hear what are the one or two or three for right now. And I'm going to invite you to make a commitment for those one or two or three for the next week. A week is generally uh, an amount of time that is bite-sized. You make a commitment to follow these three, one or two or three um, ways of deepening for the next week and really have it be a priority. Really commit to it. We'll do a low-key commitment schedule at the end of the session. Okay? But have a sense of commitment for uh, what seems right for you. And then we come back next week and we talk about it and I'm thinking for the next uh, two weeks to go into more detail on on some of the some of the ones that I mentioned, you know, and and have us in a way also for the this period of time, each week make a commitment. Those of you who choose to, you know, you can still come and not make a commitment. That's okay. Maybe you'll make it later. Okay. Uh, so that's my intention for these these three weeks, and I'm also uh, quite open to your own suggestions of areas that you'd like me to consider or talk about. You can either bring it up in the discussion, uh, a particular point, or leave a note here, and I'll, I'll, I'll incorporate what you find maybe a particular, uh, particular challenge. And I was also reflecting that the, the kind of the vision of practice of how we can develop, of the different elements of development, I think in our time is a, is, is a somewhat vast vision. There's a very large map of how we can develop, and there, there is the very immense traditional map of coming to awakening, of coming to liberation, that we have, you know, especially here from the Buddhist tradition, but that is there in other traditions as well. And it's a very immense vision. It's a, it's a vision of coming to the point, you know, in ordinary language, where our being is just totally manifesting love and wisdom. You know, and moving towards that. And having that aspiration guide our lives. Which means both increasingly developing a number of amazing qualities like mindfulness, wisdom, love, compassion, equanimity, skillful action, and so forth. And, but it also means that we're also seeing what stands in the way of those qualities. I would... I would I don't know how this happened, but for a moment, uh, I was channeling a phrase from Steve Bannon. <laughs> he has that phrase, I think, deconstruction of the administrative state, you know? And I was thinking that part of our practice is the deconstruction of habitual states and negative states. So, sorry, that, that, I'm just... 
speaking what comes through. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you for the suggestion, Mr. Bannon, even as you decrease in personal power. I hope you don't have attachment to that. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay, I'm sorry for the digression. Uh, but, but, the, but the practice that we do is very much uh, that developing these beautiful states and also seeing what gets in the way and working with that. You know, and, and, and both are really crucial. You know, we have to do both. And that's a lot of our deepening in daily life practice will at one time emphasize the one, another time emphasize the other. Uh, in our contemporary sense of practice, I think there are dimensions of practice that we bring out in the contemporary world that weren't there in such a developed way in the ancient tradition. I'm thinking of, for example, the kinds of psychological learning that we uh, are really integrating with spiritual learning. You know, that's, a, I think, a key dimension of contemporary practice that we also have pointers to ways that we can work through different kinds of psychological material. You know, it may be issues, like I work with a lot with... Uh, people with, with self-judgment, judgment of others, shame, trauma, uh, relational issues, uh, developmental issues, all these areas, we have a lot more tools. And I think there's a beautiful integration of traditional practice with ways of getting at those kind of issues. So for some of us, one, some of our edge of development and learning may be to work further with one of those issues. If, and if we can, connect it with, with mindfulness, compassion, and so forth, uh, loving kindness. And there's also, I think, the way that in our times, many of us are also called to integrate our practice with the social dimension, you know, with responding to the needs of the world in the ways that call us, you know, with uh, responding to the, in many ways, urgent needs of our world. You know, around, you know, for many of us, see urge, tremendous urgency with climate issues, with uh, responding to um, you know, uh, really you know, threats to the well-being of our social world, you know, or uh, different dimensions of oppression or discrimination and so forth. I don't think I need to say too much there, but for having that be on the map, I think, is also very important. So it's, it's actually a vast vision, isn't it, of practice. I think it's a beautiful vision, but it is a vast vision of areas where we might be called, where we might develop. And I think it's also a personal vision. I don't think there's a kind of a cookie-cutter model of everyone has to do this. I think there's a very important place for seeing what one's own calling is, where one is called what one's vocation is. The, the very word vocation has the uh, word or the, the etymology of, of being called. It's an ancient spiritual uh, understanding. You know? I think the original notion of a church, I think the very word used, if I remember correctly, was ecclesia, you know, like ecclesiastical. And that literally means kind of the gathering of those who are called. Right? So it's a very important place for listening 
to one's own calling, hearing one's own inner voice, having a sense of one's vocation, being very, very honest with that. And so there are, in a way, different paths that we follow. Some will follow the path of doing a lot of meditation, intensive practice. Some will really integrate that a lot with psychological work. Some will be called to a path of service, a path of helping in the world. Some will come more through the heart. Some will come more through the mind and so forth. So there's this, there's this beautiful uh, variety. <clears throat> now if I, so if I asked you right now just to go inside and answer this question, how would you do that? And the question is, how can, what for you right now will most deepen your sense of practice? This is just for yourself. Just see what is there internally. And I'll just let, let this be internal and have it rest there for a moment. What will help you deepen? What one thing for right now? Thank you. I think it's that cultivation, again, of the inner listening, the inner voice, which is so important for us. And for, for some of us, that might be the edge of learning. Can I listen more to my own inner wisdom? And one way to do that is just to ask, you know, what does my inner wisdom say right now? I, I remember partly how this developed first for me, or at least consciously, I was on a retreat and I was doing walking meditation. This was at uh, Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts where I did some of my first retreats. I was living in Massachusetts. And the, place, the main place we did walking meditation, very interesting, uh, it was a, a former bowling alley. <laughs> Insight Meditation Society was a converted mansion. And the people who had owned it had installed a bowling alley. And we did the walking meditation right near the bowling alley. Anyway, so I was doing the walking meditation, and I noticed <clears throat> that I seemed to be afraid in some way of the person walking next to me. And I didn't know why. And it was kind of mystifying. You know, I was feeling this, almost like this fear of this person or something like, ah, I don't feel comfortable. And... Um, for whatever reason, I just stopped walking and I just stood still and I asked myself, why is there fear? And I just stopped and I listened internally and I got an answer. I had never done that before to my knowledge, you know. And um, the answer was that there was some way this person had some power that I was afraid of. Actually, a good power, but there was some way that I was afraid, but much more significant. So I do remember the answer I got, but more significant was the, that sense that I could actually ask myself a question on the spot and get an honest answer from a deeper place. Right? It was really, really crucial. It was, it was like what the Quakers call the still small voice. 
and having access to that really crucial part of daily life. And one way to deepen practice is just to cultivate that. Maybe to say, stop, or it might be to listen whenever you, there's a little bit of confusion. This is how I increasingly did it after that time. Whenever there's a moment of confusion, see if you can be mindful of it, stop and ask what's going on. Or, you know, you can see what your voice asks. For me, it would be to ask what's happening. Or in this case, what do I fear? <clears throat> or maybe in another situation, what do I really want here? You know, or what's going on? Or what's, what am I actually feeling? It could be all sorts of things. The, the, and that's, that's a beautiful um, practice. Again, because ultimately, our practice has to depend in a very deep way on having connection to our own inner wisdom and our own inner intuition. That's a way to cultivate it, right? I have uh, um, someone I know who I trained with named uh, John Eisman, who is a uh, master therapist. And I studied with him when I studied the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. It's a beautiful training. And does anyone have a cell phone on? Yes. Okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. Inner intuition is often helped by turning off one's cell phone. <laughs> and anyway, John. Uh, John had this model, which he which he pointed to, in the training. He said that we all have something in every moment which he called the organic self. And the organic self knows what is, as it were, the authentic thing to do in a moment. Big things, small things. And there's, there's also the conditioned self. Or in his language, he said, we have, we have uh, fragments of ourself that have these different voices that are conditioned. It might, and we can look, <clears throat> look at it for something big, like, why am I feeling fear? Or I'm really confused now. What's the right thing to do in this difficult situation? It can be something big. It can be something as simple as saying, should I have seconds on that item for lunch? <laughs> and there's, a, there's an organic self that will give you an answer, and there's a conditioned self that will give you an answer, right? And so that's a way to practice it, right? Just for small things, keep asking, what's the wise thing to do? Don't get too confused if you don't know, just... Don't worry about it. But it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful way of practice. That's one way to practice. Um, a major area to practice for some of us is to take as a way to deepen practice simply to commit to a daily practice. Some of us do not have daily practices. That's very foundational. It's a way of stopping, being present. And if you don't have a daily practice, a very good use for the next week would be to say, I commit for the next week to a 20-minute daily practice or a 30-minute daily practice or a 10-minute daily practice, and I commit to that. And that is extremely significant. So you can see what we commit to can vary. It can vary from something that's more foundational, something that we might do initially, to something that could be more complex and, in a sense, more 
at an intermediate or advanced place of our own learning, our own development. The key is to always know an edge of learning and be able to identify it and be at that learning edge. It's really a model of what we might call lifelong learning and having a sense, okay, this is my learning edge right now. It really brings, uh, brings us alive, doesn't it? We have a sense of this is my learning edge right now. So you kind of know. Another way to say that is you know what's alive in you, right? Because the learning edge is about aliveness. It's about something that's calling, that there is some excitement, uh, and can bring a lot of joy. I felt that during the four-week retreat, I was emphasizing aspects of daily life practice a lot at the retreat. I felt a lot of joy because I knew that it was meeting like a, a very authentic uh, learning edge. Okay? So daily life practice, for some of us, we may already have a daily life practice. Maybe the lear- learning edge that speaks to you is increasing your daily life practice from uh, 15 minutes to 20 minutes or to 30 minutes or whatever. For some of us, it might be, I already have a well-established once-a-day practice. Let me do another 10 or 15 minutes in the evening. That may really speak to you, right? Uh, because it, it's a one way of deepening. You know? uh, another way of deepening may be to find small ways during the day to move out of, your, of the automatic way of being. You know? That we can see when we look at our everyday lives that we're often in a kind of trance. Does anyone relate to that? You know, there's a way that we're on automatic. doesn't mean it's bad, necessarily. We can be doing wonderful things, you know, I don't know, washing dishes, cleaning the house, uh, you know, doing a, a very important task. But we may be on automatic. And part of what the practice is about is bringing more awareness, intention, kindness, and so forth into what we do. So for some of us, the edge of learning, and this has been very important for me, is to find a few, maybe who are just one or two or three, little times during the day where you can bring in uh, the cultivation of mindfulness. A few examples. You know, uh, one person who I work with, she goes from uh, parking at work, she has a five-minute walk, from the car to where she works, she always tries to have that be walking meditation. Right? Small thing like that. I have, uh, I've talked about this I think a few times, I have a knee exercise which I do every morning typically where I just sort of massage my knee a little bit, not, not very uh, complicated, I don't need a lot of thought. I do have to do it for about 10 minutes. I turn it into a practice period. So I'm practicing during that 10 minutes. I have that every day, it's there. I also uh, do a certain amount of work with people, one-on-ones, and I uh, always, typically, unless someone really doesn't want to, we, at the beginning of our session, we sit for 10 minutes together. Another thing is when I'm, when I'm uh, uh, at least once a day, if I'm having a meal on my own, I do metta practice or loving-kindness practice for at least 10 or 15 minutes during the meal. 
You can take a meal, have it be mindfulness. Again, I'm mentioning things, see what resonates. Don't do all of them, at least not immediately. Um, And so you can see that just naming this, I might have now five or six times during the day when I do 10 minutes further practice. You can see what that does. It breaks through the trance. It breaks through that automatic quality. And start with one. Start with a five or 10 minute thing that you're already doing. Could be you take a walk after a meal, right? Something like that. I I find something like this quite helpful because a lot of the practice as we deepen it is finding ways to stop the automatic quality, come back, recenter, and then proceed. And maybe, you know, maybe we get a little bit lost not soon after, but there's something that involves learning in that process. So this other suge- this suggestion I've just given, is there something in your life that takes five or 10 minutes that you do regularly? I, ha- I find the key to this is doing it regularly, even somewhat ritualistically, not so much in terms of you know, candles or something like that, but ritualistically in the sense that you do it all the time. You do it, you don't not do it. And so it builds a groove. I have a groove now where if I, if I find myself not doing that little knee exercise in 10 minutes of practice, something in me says, hey, wait a second, you're missing something. Hey, alert, <laughs> right? And that's what happens when you, as it were, build a habit like that. So there's something really crucial in doing it regularly. If you can do it even the same time, it'll build a little more sense of that. You know, always take a 10-minute walk after lunch that'll, or breakfast or whatever. That will build a certain amount of uh, continuity, right? Another related practice that uh, may be something that is important for some people is to do a Sabbath practice what I call a Sabbath practice, which is a once a week, a maybe doing anywhere from two or three hours to a whole day of practice and doing it regularly. I've been doing a Sabbath practice most of the last 35 years, where one day a week I do at least a few hours and more often uh, more than that, where I do sitting, walking, maybe some reading and so forth. And Doing, you know, doing that once a week has many of the benefits that we find in uh, Sabbaths that are done in other traditions, right? The once a week. It, it's like a returning to one's basic priorities or one's most important priorities, you know, to cultivate wisdom, love, and so forth. And having the once a week can be a way that we come back to that. Again, we break the automatic qualities of the week. Maybe for that time, we're offline, unplugged, as it were, as the, as the phrase goes. We, maybe we're not on the telephone. We drop the habitual things, even just for a morning, um, once a week. Some people I work with, they try to just do it once a month or once every two weeks. If you can do it regularly on the same day, that gives a strength to it. Because there's something, it becomes like the, it can be like the pivot of the week. Has anyone here done an actual Sabbath practice, maybe in another tradition? Yeah. Uh, 
when you do it, it becomes like the pivot of the week. You return to it every week. And it's like a returning, might for many people, it's like a returning to something that is deeper. Another helpful practice might be to do some reading or listen to a talk recorded regularly. Some people I work with, they read, do some kind of reading that informs their practice 15 minutes a day. And again, we're looking just for one or two or three that spark you, right? So it could be to have a book that you're reading on an ongoing basis. Read the book before you go to sleep. Do 10 minutes of reading and continue with it. That will deepen practice. That will help the wisdom dimension to develop. This can also be related for some of us. The deepening will be from giving a little more focus to your own formal practice. It's another way of deepening. Bring a little more focus on concentration in your actual meditation. You can get guidance from this from talks that are on Dharma Seed, online, or with a teacher, or going to a retreat. Focus a little bit more on concentration. Focus a little bit more on inquiry during meditation. It's one of the ways that our uh, formal meditation can be more alive. Sometimes we get into a kind of a habit of the meditation being very pleasant, calm, and somewhat dull. Anyone relate to that? I think, I think it's very, very easy to get into that. And there are ways that when we bring in a certain curiosity, looking, you know, this can be, uh, let me really notice the arising and passing of whatever occurs in my experience. Let me track impermanence during this sitting. Let me really look to see if in my sitting, is there any way that I'm reactive that I grasp hold of something or push something away, a body sensation, a thought, an emotion, a memory? And can I study the dynamics of uh, reactivity? Can I watch, can I really study this dynamic of my mind? Can I watch when uh, some sort of self-image appears? Can I study the manifestations of my sense of self in my meditation? Or we can work with other teachings. This can bring a lot of interest. Sometimes this can come out of a particular study or a particular, maybe reading a book. There are books that can give very good guidance for this sort of practice. Or maybe taking a class or maybe sometimes we do something like that here where we focus on a particular area. And you can work with that. You might want to develop loving-kindness practice. Maybe you want to really focus on developing the heart in some way and bring a little more emphasis to loving-kindness or compassion or more joy. And these, again, can really give a lot of life. I think, you know, when I think of doing like a six-month course on deepening daily life practice, we do that for a month, I'm sure. We would, we would find ways to deepen the formal practice. This can give a lot of sense of interest and so forth. And then another way might be to, in daily life, look for the ways, very similar to what we do in formal practice, make a vow to look in daily life for the times that you get caught. The way we get stuck. Looking into how we get stuck is a really big part of practice. And it can be very exciting. Does it sound exciting? 
Some of you are nodding. Some of you look skeptical. <laughs> okay. But uh, at a certain point in practice, it's exciting. Okay. It can really be exciting. And because, because you know, what, we can bring it to uh, parts of our daily life. Okay, I'm really going to study how I interact with this difficult person at work. You know, I've told the story sometimes of this like multi-month period where I was working with a very difficult boss. And I was, I was doing inner work. With, with, I was being guided by a mentor. I was doing all this sustained inner work, watching my judgmental mind towards my boss for six months. And it was, it was, uh, it was exciting. It really was. And, and we, we can do that. We can, we can uh, you know, look at some pattern. Uh, we can uh, have a plan for what I do when I get triggered, right? You know, I'm going to this kind of gathering. You know, I'm going to uh, be with someone who sometimes triggers me. Let me have a plan for working with that. Let me have a plan for going to this family gathering. For some of us, that's advanced practice. Okay. Um, We can also sometimes bring some of the practices into particular activities. We can do metta practice, loving-kindness practice, and bring that into daily life. For example, uh, one person I work with works uh, in helping profession where she's with a lot of people in a medical context. She does loving-kindness practice a large part of the time that she's with people. She says some days it feels like she's doing loving-kindness practice 30 or 40% of the day. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? And one can do it. Other people bring metta practice, loving-kindness practice into driving. <laughs> you, you do that. Yeah. Yeah, this is an alternative for some people. Yeah. Yeah. So we can do meta practice in that way. We can do, I, I regularly do uh, forgiveness practice while driving if someone cuts me off wow. or something like that. Or, you know, my pet peeve, as I've mentioned from time to time, uh, is tailgaters. Anyone else share that? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, quite a few. So you can do forgiveness practice as well as taking actions to be as safe as possible because it's not very safe, right? But uh, uh, so you get a sense. This is, it's a very creative process when you get to it to bring all these dimensions in practice. And we're just looking for the one or two that, that spark. And maybe I'll mention one or two more and then we'll do some, just talk together some uh, about anything I said. Let me see what uh, might be some others that I didn't mention. Retreats are very helpful. For some of us, our edge might be, I'm going to sign up for a retreat or another retreat because retreats are really training periods, as as many of you know. There are times when we can actually uh, get tremendous support to develop very significantly in a few different ways with support, get good training, and also get a lot of inspiration. For me, retreats, even when they've been difficult, have invariably been um, inspiring and energizing for, for a sense of practice. I'll just mention one more aspect, which is um, the dimension of prioritizing. I mentioned the last time I was here 
three days after the retreat, that I was very struck during the retreat and in the, in the time afterwards, and this has continued, by a few uh, tendencies that I noticed in myself, which I think are quite common, if not close to universal. And I had some uh, conclusions from looking at these areas in terms of prioritizing. One of them was, I really came to the conclusion that I take in too much information. I talked about that a few weeks ago. That, and I came to the conclusion that it would be better, for, you know, I really can, you know, for someone who is interested in responding socially, information is important, but I thought, I think I take in three times the amount of information that I need. And it, gets, it has its addictive aspects at a certain point, right? You know, oh, breaking news, got to get there, you know, or this, or whatever. And so, uh, you know, it was like, what's really, what level of information do I need? Because I felt like getting so much information gets in the way of what are some of my deeper priorities. Right? It can be distracting, right? It can get, can get very distracted. Um, I also felt like, um, again, this is widespread in our society and culture, I think I do too much. Every retreat I've done, I've said, I do too much, I should do less. It's really nice, one thing that retreats can do is they can give you a sense of the joy of simplicity and of having fewer needs. And, and I came to the conclusion I should be careful about how much I do. Now, of course, a lot of our doing, we don't have so much choice, right? It's, that's, that's the case. We may be uh, needing to work this much, the work is defined, that's it, right? Uh, or we may have responsibilities to be helpers to these people. We may be raising children. All of this has energy, takes energy and time. So it's really to look, where do I have some control over my time and energy, and how does that mesh with my priorities? I imagine as part of that imagined six-month group, we would have some really careful reflection on am I living according to my priorities? my deeper values, my deeper needs. And we would look at where we're living kind of more out of habit, right? And I found that there's a lot of that. It was really interesting. There's this, there's this pressure to do. We, we all know this, right? There's this inner pressure to do. I could, it got humorous sometimes during retreats to notice that there was a pressure to do when there was utterly no need to do anything, right? Or I found myself occasionally, not, not that much, but sometimes I found myself rushing during a four-week retreat. <laughs> As if I had to really get somewhere. Right? And it, it was just, in, it's conditioning, right? And we all know that there can be a lot of that, right? So part of it is noticing those places, giving more room, and seeing if we can live more according to priorities. And again, all sorts of things help us coming to groups like this, talking about these things, having friends who, are, who share your perspectives and values, connecting with them, all these things. So I probably have mentioned 50 or more than 50 ways to deepen practice, right? Now reflect, what are the one or two, possibly three, but don't be overly ambitious, what are the one or two ways that speak to you as a way to deepen your practice from all that I've mentioned. And it could just be one. It just could be, I'm going to sit for 15 minutes every day this coming week. It could be that. 
just reflect on your own. What are the one or two, possibly three, ways that resonate for you? So I actually had this list, and I, I didn't go through them all, so I have some more for next week. But that was plenty, wasn't it? <laughs> that was plenty. And uh, any thoughts, reflections, questions, spontaneous poems? <laughs> and we have a microphone, so let's wait for the microphone. Anyone like to ask a question, share something, make a comment? OK, so we have one, Lori in front, and then the second row. Well, I was on that retreat with you, and I found myself rushing also. You found yourself? <laughs> rushing. Yeah, yeah. I know that probably my largest aversion is patience. Yeah. And it seemed, I noticed myself rushing. I wanted to not rush. It's funny how the mind thinks you have to, because you know the yogi job and the you got to get then down to the hall and here and there and got to get here or there, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. it's very interesting to really look at yeah. that aspect of conditioning yeah. of rushing and impatience. Yeah. So the the one one way to practice with that, mm -hmm. it's, it's similar to what I said near the beginning that there are these two aspects of our, two foundational aspects of our practice. One is developing positive qualities, awakened qualities, and the other is looking into what gets in the way. So taking that in terms of something like patience and not rushing, we would have the intention to develop patience, and maybe you would just repeat that to yourself a few times a day, right? Uh, or maybe you'd be going into an activity where you knew there was a tendency to not be patient or rush and say, I'm going to have the intention to be patient. Or you might say, it just right now, you notice yourself rushing. You say, let me be patient. So on the one hand, cultivating the qualities. On the other hand, you can use mindfulness to really be with that sense of rushing. What's it feel like in the body? What's there? Sometimes there's something beneath the pattern or the habit. So we might notice, oh, there's an anxiety beneath the rushing, right? Or there's something of, oh, you know, gotta, you know, or there, there can be this sense of, gotta do this if I'm gonna be a good person, you know? Yes, you can look deeply, actually. Yeah. Um, thank you, please. We have a, we have a yeah. <clears throat> Close to my mouth. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought of one that is organically connected to another for me. Yeah. It was really cool. So um, it has to do with the taking in too much information, yeah. which I also do. Yeah. And a lot of it is by being on the internet. Right. 
and uh, you know, just the, the New York Times, uh, other things on the internet, Facebook, you know, all that. And probably I spend about an hour a day doing that. Hmm. And I don't meditate or do my yoga daily. I mean, I do it so you're intermittently. So you're more committed to the internet than to meditation or yoga. Well, I just recommit it. What? I just recommit it. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to give up that hour. Yeah. Well. And uh, devoted to meditation and yoga. Well, this this week we'll see. Uh, no, 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 let's let's. Um, can we? Can you re- reframe that? Not not the we'll see. Oh well, I'm I, I'm going to I am going to commit to to it this week. That's right. Yeah. Period. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the voice to listen to. <laughs> right there. I feel, I've never done this, but I feel a little bit like I don't watch television much, but I, occasionally I see there are these kind of pop psychology shows, and it's kind of like, you know, yes, you can do it. Or something. I felt a little bit like that in that moment. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, yeah. What I find is that uh, I'll be doing my practice and meditating. It feels really good, and then my husband and I will commit to, okay, we're going to be with our dinner, we're not going to read the paper, we're not going to do something else. And this part of me will just go, no, I don't want to. I don't yeah. want to do that. I don't want to meditate. I want to be bad or something like that. And sure. honestly, I, I mean, it's, it's not funny because it really derails me a lot. So, yeah. um, how, how many can relate to that? Okay, look around. <laughs> okay, how, be honest now. How many can relate to that? Okay, I think... So, so again, it's, um, it's you know... Um, uh, the, the Tibetan teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, once said that self-knowledge is 70% bad news. <laughs> I don't know if he's exactly correct there, but a certain percentage is. And so really to notice that and what that might mean, the, the level of energy there might mean that it's actually uh, not so easy, that it might be a somewhat ingrained habit. And so... Uh, you want to be aware of that and take, up, take something bite-sized. Don't take on something that's too much because the energy there is kind of strong, right, as you were describing it. So you might you know, see what your wisdom says is a next step that's not too much because, again, we want to have these next steps not come out of it being a good idea, even though they may be good ideas, not have it coming out of an abstract good idea, but having it come out of a more of an inner intuition, this is a next step for me, and this is workable. The last part's really important. This is workable. I can do this. That's why I was pushing you a little bit, because I think that's what you said is workable, right? Uh, but you were, if I can, you're hedging a little bit, right? Well, what I meant was, yeah. we'll yeah. was not the commitment. Oh. Okay, so maybe I misinterpreted. I was interpreting the we'll see as, you know, the, the tone of voice sounded a little bit, you know. So when you said that, yeah, yeah. I just felt this real melting yeah. and like, uh, and yeah. so I think I got better insight into the part of me that goes, you've got to do it yeah. as opposed yeah, yeah. to 
the part yeah. of me that is more accepting with myself around that. More so accepting. Thank you. And then just find something that, you know, it's a little bit of a challenge, but not too much. Or it's some, there's some challenge, you know, it could be that you, I don't know, you do it for five minutes or 10 minutes or something. You have a limit, a time limit. That, that's one way of working with all of this. Yeah. This is the perfect talk for me. Yesterday, I went to the hospital, um, and I had to have my blood pressure checked. And of course, I've been in medicine for 40 years, so the person that's taking my blood pressure is putting the wrong cuff on, putting it on backwards. And of course, it means I'm thinking, oh, God, they're going to put me on some horrible medication now or up my dose. So I'm getting so reactive that my blood pressure is going up even more. And it's almost like a cycle with the reactivity. And I really didn't, you know, I had too much knowledge, yeah. like you're saying. And I just um, was, my mind was going. And I tried to breathe a little bit, but I was so reactive yeah. from all the things that I was seeing done wrong and my premonition of the future and yeah. what was going to happen that I was totally lost. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but did you realize that at the time? Or was it later? I'm really realizing it now that I'm hearing no. your talk, yeah. even more so. I, I did know a little bit, but I couldn't stop it. Yeah. I couldn't stop that reactivity yeah. and, oh, it's going to harm me, and, you know, this thought yeah. process. And let me, let me just ask, how many can relate to that, maybe have some experience like that? Yeah, because it, it, it's normal and natural. It can be of value to go back and actually try to be mindful of what it feels like when you bring that back as a memory. Because you can actually study your reactivity by bringing something back that happened earlier. And it can, that can be valuable to get a sense of what it was like. So you, did, you were, and that can also clearly give some support for the next time. You'll notice maybe sooner that you're being reactive, so that can be that can be a way to, to have it to um, work with that, even though you know you weren't aware at the moment. Yeah, I think she wants to further respond. Mentioned what you're saying exactly, but they called them ghost memories, yeah. which I thought was a wonderful yeah. kind of um, you know because ghosts kind of. I, you know, it is something that I need to make many changes on and right. look at how I relate to it. Yeah. And it stays with me. It, it, could, be some, it could be even another practice I haven't named. It could be something you do at the end of every day. You do a little bit of review. Um, could be a practice. So, um, Okay, I think I'm going to invite us now to uh, go back to that intention. Okay, let's just sit for a moment. We'll finish with the further clarification if that's needed, but the remembering of what for you is an edge of learning that you'd like to work with in the next week. And if you have an intuition that I'd rather not work with an edge of learning in the next week, that's fine. <laughs> but see what, that, see what that learning is. See what that edge is that you'd like to work with. Again, it could be one or two, possibly three things. And having one or two is, can, for many people, would be better.
And it can be helpful even to bring to mind how you might bring this into practice either later today or tomorrow. Just imagine one way that you'll bring this into your daily life. I'll move uh, in a moment to closing, and let me invite you, you can open your eyes. And how many here would like to uh, focus on one or two ways to deepen practice in the next week? Okay, okay, that's great. And uh, we can come back and compare notes. I'll bring in some further material, probably on a few selected areas that I'll go into in a little more depth, Uh, but I'll also Uh, really uh, be very interested in what you found, what helps. So we'll have a fair amount of uh, talking together. And if you have any suggestions for themes to bring into daily life, you could write them down on a piece of paper right now and give them to me, and I'll I'll try to incorporate those for uh, for next week. So we'll end with uh, two things. One is... uh, one of my favorite quotes, very simple, from uh, uh, Shabkar, a great Tibetan meditator from the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, who said, let, let your life and practice be one. Let your life and practice be one. And then we'll close with the traditional dedication. Um, sometimes you can put your hands together if you wish, but not necessary. We offer the benefits of our time together to ourselves, to those in our lives, to those in the room, but then beyond those groupings, we offer the benefits of our time together, our practice, out into the world to all beings. Ultimately, we offer the benefits of our session, of our practice to all beings, always remembering that we are part of all beings.